Every school morning in our house, we have basically the same problem. And the problem is that our youngest daughter, Madeline, doesn't want to eat breakfast. But it's important to us that she eats breakfast. As my, as my 12-year-old Caroline told me years ago, the Bible says that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. <laughs> Don't look it up. It's not in there. But breakfast is an important meal. And so just this week, Thursday morning, we're, I was just preparing myself for another breakfast battle showdown with Maddie, who's nine. And I said to her, usually what happens is I suggest a series of things to which she all says, she says no to all of them, and then we start to circle back. But this time, the very first thing I said to her was, Maddie, would you just like some toast with butter on it? And she said, yes. First thing, yes. I was like, thank you, Jesus. And so I threw the toast in, toasted it perfectly for her, cut the crust off, nice thin layer of butter, handed it to her, and within seconds, she's like, I don't want to eat this. I was like, Dad, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want to eat this. And I'm like, Maddie... What are you talking about? And then like only a parent can do, I recap the series of events from the last three minutes for my child. You, I asked you if you wanted this. You said that you wanted it. I toasted the bread for you. I cut the crust off. I made the butter. I sliced it in half. I put it on a napkin. I put it in front of you. And I said, if you don't eat this bread, we're going to have a problem. I'm trying to flex my authority on my nine-year-old. We're going to have a problem. And without even looking up, she goes, Dad, you're the problem. <laughs> we got some authority issues in my home. Um, <laughs> and this morning we're talking about authority. We're in a passage in First Peter where we're talking about submission to authority, and I promise you it's a coincidence that it's on Pastor's Appreciation Day. This was not planned. And I also want to say up front, this is one of the hardest messages I've ever written. I'm not just saying that. This was not an easy message to write, and I just want to say it may not be an easy message to hear because... Topics like submission and suffering are not what we go to church to hear about, right? It's not what we're excited by. Last week, we finished off in the first half of 1 Peter chapter 2. In the last couple of verses, Peter is encouraging the Christians that are scattered across what is now modern-day Turkey, encouraging them to do some good works. And for the rest of the chapter, the passage that we're going to be in this morning, uh, Peter is drilling in in two specific ways. He's saying, Christians... You have specific responsibilities as it relates to how you conduct yourself in society, specifically, specifically under the authority of governing leaders, but also you have specific responsibilities and there are good works for you to do in your place of employment. So this idea of submission and suffering, it's framed under the idea of authority in our lives in the form of governing leaders and our employers. And so this morning we're going to talk about submission, suffering, and salvation. Thankfully, there's a good one in there. Submission, suffering, and salvation. And the first thing that we're going to learn together is this. Our submission is unto the Lord. Our submission is unto the Lord. So let's read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says, Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He starts with the words, be subject, which is synonymous with the word submit. And I just want to say that in our time and in our culture, submission is a complicated word. 
It's a difficult word. And for some people, it's actually a painful, traumatic word. And there's a few reasons. One is our society, the American society today, is decidedly individualistic. Arguably, the most individualistic society that's ever existed in history. And so submitting to anyone for any reason at any time that doesn't feel good or self-serving actually now is being framed in our society as restricting or oppressive or actually not being true to your true self. Also, another reason why this word is hard is because powers at the highest levels of our country and in our world are regularly and readily abusing their power. And so institutional trust, wouldn't you say, is at an all-time low. Another reason why this word is difficult is because even religions like Christianity have misused verses like this and the idea of submission to trap people in abusive relationships and in unhealthy communities. And that's not what Peter is suggesting here at all. So submission, it's an uncomfortable word, but we can't get around it because it's in the New Testament so much. Paul, Peter, and Jesus, they talk about submission and they model submission. So this morning, it's going to feel a little more like a teaching, I think, but I want to talk about what is submission. And there's three things that we're going to learn from this text about submission, or at least the submission that Peter is writing about. And the first thing is this, submission is a choice. It's a choice. Now, given, when you're given a command, it does not mean that you no longer have a choice, right? I commanded my daughter to eat her toast, but she still had a choice. I wasn't going to force that bread into her mouth. She had to choose to submit. And in this passage, when Peter talks about submission to governing authorities and submission to our employers and our bosses, submission is not something a person forces you into. You choose to submit. So you cannot say submission is bad because you're taking my will away. No, actually, you're given the opportunity to exercise your will. This is not powerlessness. This is not victimization. It is not spineless cowardice or fearful weakness if you choose to submit. I was talking to someone recently. I was in Philadelphia area this past week speaking at a college, and I was talking with a leader who said, I used to have a friend who, who I thought was being taken advantage of people in his church because he would, they would ask him for help all the time, and he would do it all the time. And one time I went to my friend, and I said, they're taking advantage of you. They're taking advantage of you. And he said this to them. He says, they're not taking advantage of me if I am choosing to serve them. If it's my choice to serve them, then they are not taking advantage of me. So this is, submission is, is a choice. The New Testament writers never instruct anyone to make someone else submit. Never does it say, husbands, make your wives submit. Bosses, make your employees submit. Government leaders, make your people submit. It does not. The command is to the people. Would you choose to submit? Okay, number one, it's a choice. Number two, submission is never an excuse for sin. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the council because they're preaching about Jesus, and the council rebukes them and commands them in their authority, stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> and, and they're not just saying, like, specifically in this place, like your employer might say, hey, we're not going to talk about religion in our workplace. They're saying you can't talk about Jesus anywhere. And Peter and John say, listen, we have to obey God and not you. 
Now, was that Peter and John not submitting to the authority? No, it was them not allowing submission to be an excuse for sin. To them, it would have been a sin for them to stop telling people about the good news of Jesus because they had been commissioned and instructed by Jesus himself to do so. So we do not submit ourselves to laws that cause us or require us to sin. If we're ever in a place as a nation where there are laws that require us to sin against God, then we should not submit to that sort of authority. I would suggest we are not in that place at this point, but it doesn't mean that we couldn't get there someday. Now, let me give you this caveat on this point. Do not confuse issues of righteousness with issues of personal preference. Just because you don't like a law, that's not a reason to not, I don't agree with the law, or actually this is kind of the, the climate of our world today. It's not I don't agree with the law. I don't, like, I don't agree with the person who made that law, or I don't agree with the party that sponsored that law, and so I'm not going to, it does not apply to me. If it's not leading you to sin, then you should submit to governing authority. That's what Peter is teaching us here. And then the third thing that we learn about submission is this. Submission is always directed towards something or someone. Submission is not a carte blanche blanket sort of thing. It's not everyone in every situation. I don't submit to every single person in every single situation. This is to certain people who are in positions of authority in our lives in very specific situations. Submission is not about offering a doormat-like weakness all the time. We are showing commitment to something or someone when we submit. And often, submission is for our good individually and our good collectively. When we as a people submit to the traffic laws of our land, it's for our good. When, if everybody would follow the traffic laws, I think, generally speaking, it would be a lot safer out there. Have you ever seen pictures of countries where there seems to be no traffic laws? People are just doing whatever they want. It's not for our good. And so submission is always directed towards someone or something. All right? Next question. Who are we to submit to? And there's two groups of people that we are to submit to according to this text. Number one, the authority in our lives. In verse 17, Paul gives, or sorry, Peter gives four very brief commands. Number one, honor everyone. What does that mean? He doesn't say submit to everyone. He says honor everyone. This is just about good conduct between Christians and and unbelievers. Christians should be courteous and respectful to all people. In the next phrase, he's going to talk about how we relate to Christians. So we know that this is not about how you treat other Christians. This is how you treat people who don't believe the same that you believe. This is how you interact with people who are not Christians. Honor everyone, that we can honor and be courteous and respectful towards everyone. Then he kind of, Peter steps up a level and says, when it comes to fellow Christians, love the brotherhood or the sisterhood. This is a higher obligation to fellow Christians. It's not just respect, but it's strong, deep love. Then he says, fear God, which is the highest obligation Here's what Peter's teaching us. Don't fear the people that you're submitting to. You do not submit out of fear. You submit unto the Lord, not unto them, all right? So fear, do not fear everyone, do not fear anyone, do not fear non-Christians, do not fear Christians. Fear only God. And then the last thing he says is honor the emperor. And this is actually uh, sort of irony here, because Peter, what he's just done in these four commands is he's put the emperor on the same level with all people. Because remember, he started by saying, honor all people, and he ends with saying, honor the emperor. And what he's teaching them is that in a Roman culture where the emperor was considered by some to be a godlike, he's saying, honor him, but do not worship him. Do not bow your knee to the emperor. Do not worship him, honor him. 
And when you think about Peter saying this, because I mean, let's be honest, that we have a hard time honoring our leaders, don't we? If we're honest as a, as a culture, uh, we have a hard time. And sometimes it's because they don't really act or live in ways that seem deserving of honor. It's hard to do. And we might say, well, Peter doesn't understand what it's like to live in America today. Peter doesn't understand what it's like to be on the other side of some issues. Peter doesn't understand to know that somebody's in a position of leadership that they shouldn't be in. But I want you to know that when Peter says honor the emperor, what he says here is so much more powerful than what you and I could put. If you and I today were to say honor the president, honor the vice president, honor Congress, honor the Senate, it's so far short of what Paul, Peter says here when he says honor the emperor. Here's why. The emperor in Peter's day was none other than Nero. Nero was the Roman ruler who led a great persecution against Christians in the first century. In fact, historians tell us that it's under Nero's rule that the man who wrote these words, Peter, will eventually be killed for his faith. Other authorities of this time included governors like Pontius Pilate. You recognize that name? Pontius Pilate, the man who handed Jesus over to death as Peter stood in the shadow. There's a governor named Felix who played, uh, who played with his power when it came to Paul. All three of these men are living and ruling as Peter is writing these words. And still Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, honor the emperor. Don't fear him. Don't worship him. But honor. So we submit to the authorities in our lives. But the second thing or person that we submit to, and this is the most important, is the Lord. Verse 13 is really important. It says, be subject to every human institution. But in the middle of that phrase, it says what? For the Lord's sake, or on the count of the Lord. He's giving the rationale or the underlying motivation for such obeying. You do not, listen, we submit unto the Lord. I do not submit for my sake so that I will get something out of it. I do not submit for your sake so that you will agree with me. I do not submit even for the sake of the authorities in our country, in our land. I submit for the Lord's sake. I submit unto the Lord, and my submission that I choose is expressed towards authorities in my life, but it's not unto them, it's unto the Lord. It's not an act of obedience and ultimate loyalty to any governmental leader or our bosses at work. It is a declaration of our loyalty and commitment to God who has placed authority in our lives, and so we submit unto the Lord. God is a righteous creator to whom we are accountable. The universe that we live in is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. There is a king who reigns and rules. So our obedience to the governing authorities, therefore, is at best only secondary. Our primary allegiance is to God. Our submission is unto the Lord. Last question I want to ask about submission is this. Why do we submit? Why? And the first reason is this, that authority is God's idea. Authority is part of God's plan for human freedom and human flourishing. Authority actually feels often, what's your experience with authority been like? It often feels like it's a threat to our freedom. And it's a threat to our flourishing. And yet from the beginning of time, God establishes authority in this world for human freedom and for freedom, uh, human flourishing. One of the books I read this week says it this way. Every time we do not submit to the rules that plague us all, we are casting our vote with lawlessness. And every time we go out of our way to submit, we bear witness to the one whose law stands above every law. Every time we obey our employer, our school teacher, and our parents, we give honor to Christ who reigns over the whole universe. Authority and order 
are God's ideas. And so we submit because it's part of God's plan for true freedom and true flourishing. Now, this is challenging, right? I can feel it in the room. There's like pushback happening internally right now because this is a hard thing. And I wanted to say, like, authority, one of the things that helped me understand authority was one time I was speaking at a uh, college, and I was having lunch after the chapel with the president of the university, and he began to talk about the challenges that he was facing with their students, this next generation of college kids, and he talked about the, the challenge of authority. And he said, one of the things that people don't understand about authority is that authority is like a fabric, so envision, you know, four of us holding a piece of fabric up here on each corner and pulling it tight so that the fabric itself is taut. And his point was this, authority is like a fabric. If you weaken it in one place, if you were to cut a hole in one part of the fabric, it weakens it everywhere else. Now, parents, listen, because this was a big eye-opener for me and something I'm working on very hard. If we in front of our children are always tearing down the authorities in our world and in our lives, we are actually cutting our own legs out from underneath us. We're weakening our own authority because authority is a fabric. So for example, and I'm guilty of everything I'm about to say, <laughs> so don't feel like I'm picking on anyone. If I say, you're, you're, I just don't think that's a, I don't think you got a good teacher there. I don't think they know what they're doing. Just ignore them and do your own thing. Your coach isn't whatever, fill in the blank, and forget what they have to say and listen to what I have to say. Driving past people in authority, whether it's police officers or whatever, and kind of sharing my personal thoughts or opinions. I don't really have negative opinions towards police, but some people, of course, do. And so anytime we tear down authority as a whole, we actually are weakening the fabric of authority in the lives of our children so that someday we're like, why don't they listen to me? Because you've never submitted yourself in front of them to the authorities in your life. Why would they submit themselves to the authorities in their lives, including yours? It's hard, right? I didn't like that lunch with that president. <laughs> but it's challenged me, and I'm working on it, and I think it's something we have to pay attention to, right? So the first reason why we submit is because it's part of God's plan. But the second reason why we submit is it actually bears witness. And, and in, in verse 15, Peter wrote these words. It's the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There is a way in which our, authority, our submission to authority actually silences the ignorance of foolish people. So our motivation rests in this. Submission to authority in all different ways is the strongest apologetic against the view that Christians are not good citizens, they're up to no good, and they think they're above authority. In fact, when Peter tells the leaders to keep their conduct honorable, he uses a unique Greek word. He doesn't use the word that just speaks of moral goodness and ethical righteousness. He uses a Greek word called kalos, which talks about the aesthetic worth and beauty of your life. In other words, when you submit and when you honor other people, there's a way in which the goodness of your life commends itself to the people around you, and it's a, there's a nobility and an attractiveness about a life that is submitted in healthy ways to Authority. Now, I want to pause and say this. The Christian faith, and specifically throughout the Old Testament, and even more specifically in the minor prophets, always speaks up against issues of systemic injustice. So this is not an idea of not having a voice against things of systemic injustice. What Peter is talking about here is occasional issues of injustice that you are enduring at the hands of unhealthy leaders. He's not talking about a systemic issue that needs to be spoken to, addressed, and something needs to happen about it. So Peter is very specifically talking about occasional issues of injustice that people might experience in day-to-day -day 
light. So think about all the sources of authority in your life. Most of you work somewhere, so most of you work for someone. All of us live in a government where whether we like it or not, we're under some realm of authority. How do we honor God? How can our submission not be unto them, but unto the Lord? And there's a danger on both sides of this, by the way. If you don't like who's sitting in the White House, if you don't like who's passing the laws, then you, don't submit unto, you won't submit at all. So you're not submitting unto them. It means you're also not submitting unto the Lord. But if you love who's sitting in the White House and you love, then your submission, the danger is this, your submission actually is unto them and not unto the Lord. You're submitting to them because you agree with them and you love them and you adore them and you appreciate them. But even that submission is not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about a submission that is not unto a party or a person, but is unto the Lord. Told you this was not going to be that fun to hear. All right, second point this morning. Our suffer, so our submission is unto the Lord, but secondly, our suffering is like the Lord's. Let's go back to the passage, and this is a hard text that we're about to read, harder than the one we just read. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, now other translations say when you are punished for it, you endure. For if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now, what is really hard about this passage is the, word of, is the use of the word servants and slaves. And what probably comes to mind is the sort of slavery, the sin of slavery that mars the history of our country and still happens all over this world. But at this time in this place in history, this was a very different thing. I just want to explain that briefly to help us this morning. At this time in history, being a servant was not based on ethnicity. It was based on economics. So this was not a carte blanche sort of enslavement of people based on ethnicity or something that was beyond their means. It was basically the way in which the economy functioned in Rome so that people could basically be indentured servants where they worked in a household or in a field for the purpose of earning money so that they could live their lives and eventually work off any debt that they have and actually work their way to freedom. So not only was it not ethnicity-based, it was not a forever thing. You could work your way out. And actually, I learned this this week. This was interesting. When you were older and if your, your, your boss, your master, wanted to release you but you didn't want to be released because it wasn't the best thing for you, you had the autonomy to say, no, I'm going to stay. So there was extensive Roman legislation re- regulating the treatment of slaves. They were paid for their services, and eventually many of them could purchase their freedom. But when you get to this passage, I think if you're like me, what you really want Peter to say is, this is bad. Do you kind of feel like, Peter, why don't you just speak up? This is a bad deal for these people. Speak up against this. You should keep in mind that while Peter does not address the institution of slavery per se, his sympathy in this text is clearly with the slave. No ancient slave war war was ever successful, and abolition was virtually impossible in his day except through a probably doomed, bloody revolution. So in this situation, it was far more practical for Peter as a pastor to encourage those in the situations to deal with it constructively until they could gain or purchase their freedom. All right, that's what's happening here. However, Peter actually is being subversive in a few ways. Let me point them out to you. Number one, he defines how governing institutions should work when he says they should punish evil and praise good. Systemic injustice is a concern of the Christian faith. So when there are government leaders in place who are praising evil and punishing good, that's a problem. Punish evil, praise good. He also, as we already said, puts the emperor on level with all people. 
Thirdly, he actually calls out behavior in masters and employees and calls it unjust. He says, if you are treated in an unjust way, what he is doing here is actually kind of shocking at this time. He's saying to the masters, there are things you are doing that are not just. He's calling them out. But then lastly, this letter would have been read out loud in a local church gathering like this. And by addressing servants in this letter, do you know what Peter expects? He expects servants to be in there to be in that room, gathering with free people. And that was one of the most beautiful things about the early church is that free and slaves gathered together. And in that house of God, in that church, in that space, they were all equals. But Peter's main interest here is not speaking to those in power, but to those who are being asked to submit, even in a way that would be considered suffering. And what's incredible is Peter is a man, think about Peter if you know the Gospels. This is a man who tried to talk Jesus out of his suffering. You remember that? Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Peter said, no, you're not. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, okay, maybe you are. (laughs) Peter tried to talk Jesus out of his suffering. Peter grabbed a sword in the garden and tried to attack the soldiers to prevent Jesus' suffering. Jesus had to stop him. And then, to avoid his own risk of personal suffering, he denies Jesus three times, runs away from the scene, distances himself from Jesus. Peter was not into suffering. But something has changed in his life. What has changed? He's realized our suffering is like the Lord's. If our God never suffered, then think about it. If our God never suffered, then our suffering would make us less like him. If our God never suffered, then it would widen the gap between humanity and divinity. If our God never suffered, then it would make him less relatable, approachable, accessible. But the center of the Christian faith, it's the only faith at the center of it has the humiliation of its own God. And because our God did suffer, then when we suffer, we don't become less like him. We become more like him. It doesn't widen the gap. It closes the gap. It doesn't make him less relatable, accessible. It makes him more so. See, friends, following Jesus is not the way out of suffering. In fact, it's often the way into suffering. But remember three things very important about the suffering that we experience as Christians. Number one, it's never alone. You never walk through it alone. Tim Keller says, suffering is unbearable if you are not certain that God is for you and with you. And yet Christians know God is for me and he is with me. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. We never suffer alone. As Peter says here, we're mindful of God. Number two, it's never wasted. Everything is useful in the kingdom of God. Keller says, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And one of the gifts of suffering is it brings you to a place where Jesus is all you have and you realize he's all I've ever needed. And then lastly, not only is it never alone, never wasted, it's not without ends. Every wrong deed in the universe will either be covered by the blood of Jesus or repaid justly by God at the final judgment where he'll make every wrong right. Yours are covered, be thankful. You and I don't want what we deserve, but those whose sins are not covered, there will be a day they stand before a judge and everything will be made right. So there is a way to suffer well, even when it's not fair, even when it's not deserved, even when you're wrongfully accused like Jesus was. Our suffering is like the Lord's. I'm gonna ask Pastor Anthony to join me. As we close, last thing this morning, our salvation is from the Lord. Let's finish this passage. and Just listen to these words as Peter brings us back to the truth of the gospel. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And here's the sort of surprise of everything. We don't like submission. We don't like suffering. But without submission and without suffering, there's no salvation. Our salvation comes through the suffering and submission of Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, to the Jewish rulers, and to the Roman authorities, all the way to death on a cross, the death of a criminal. Jesus suffered incredible pain and incredible injustice. Keller says that suffering is the heart of the Christian story. At the heart of the Christian story, we find a suffering God, the son of suffering that we sing about. And this is a question that kind of stuck with me all week as I prepared this message. If God chose to use the submission and suffering of his own son on that dark day to save us from the penalty of sin, doesn't it seem likely that he will continue to use submission and suffering in our lives to daily save us from the power of sin and to ultimately save us from the very presence of sin? Let me finish with this. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only suffering that can really destroy you, the suffering of being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns that person into something gorgeous, something beautiful, something wonderful. So how do we submit well unto the Lord? How do we suffer like the Lord? We realize that our salvation is from the Lord. And this salvation is possible because of his submission to the Father, his suffering in our place. And so we learn to submit not unto our rulers and bosses and leaders. We submit unto the Lord. And it expresses itself in many different ways. We suffer like the Lord. And we're never alone, it's never wasted, and it's not without end. And we experience the salvation of the Lord. We taste and see of his goodness. Let's pray together.